Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Podcarts Life is Like a Box of Records podcast. My name is Helena Rafai. Occasionally, we bring in special guests to talk about the songs that have soundtracked their lives so far. For rights reasons, music may be shorter than the original song. Podcast Life is Like a Box of Records is recorded, produced and edited by me, Helena Rafai. Original music is by Susan Bear, aka Good Dog. This week's guest is Vic Galloway. Vic is a DJ, presenter, musician and writer. He's been a long-time broadcaster on the BBC, helping numerous bands reach a significant audience. His book, Songs in the Key of Fife, showed yet another dimension to his numerous talents. He has also recently emerged as part of terrific Edinburgh music trio, Czech Masses. It's his knowledge and investment in music, however, that cements him as a complete inspiration and one that Scotland continues to recognise. Vic Galloway, welcome to Podcart. For I think we you did our one hundredth episode, which was amazing. Um, so it's quite strange that we are now in lockdown and you are guesting back. How are you? I'm very well, actually. I mean, it's all of this existential dread that surrounds us and anxiety and um, you know this this kind of looming feeling of doom, and yet there's a sort of sense of peace and calm as well. Uh, I suppose because we're all locked down. Um, we have to sort of concentrate on making ourselves feel as good as possible and be as productive as possible. So I'm in my house with my girlfriend and our dog. Um, I'm doing as much work and being as creative as possible. And we've, we've been getting nice weather, so the sun shines in through the windows. And I'm trying to be as positive as possible. And for people that might not know you, can you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Vic Galloway. I have been making programmes for the BBC for 20 years, slightly over 20 years, uh, on Radio 1, Radio Scotland, Six Music, and occasionally for the World Service. I've done lots of telly. Um, I've written a couple of books, Songs in the Key of Fife, and Rip It Up, The Story of Scottish Pop. I'm a journalist and a musician. Basically, Helena, I'm a music nerd, a teenage music <laughs> nerd that turned my hobby into my job. I, I feel very lucky. You're a music whore. I am, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> um, I, it'll be quite nice for you on this podcast. We're not on the BBC, so feel free to swear as well. There's, uh, there's nothing, uh, you know, there's no censorship. Um, but I want to kick off with your first pick, and then we'll kind of go through um, as we go along quite naturally. Uh, so, Little Richard and Tutti Frutti, why did this stand out for you so much? And why is it, well, why is it significant for you? Okay, I've just said that I'm a music nerd. I suppose it has to start somewhere. Um, when I was thinking about my choices for this, um, I could have started with Peter and the Wolf, um, the classical piece that was you know, really important um, for me and many children as one of their first musical experiences. I could have also chosen the Pink Panther or the Baby Elephant Walk by um, Henry Mancini, because theoretically that's the first record I ever had. I was given it as a baby or as a toddler. And it was a, a seven-inch single. My mum still got it somewhere. And I used to dance around the living room to it as a toddler. And I think... You know, I still love those two pieces of music, the Pink Panther and the Baby Elephant Walk, and I think Henry Mancini's wonderful. Um, so those were these Peter and the Wolf, and those records were really important to me in terms of understanding what music was about. But I've gone for Little Richard and Tutti Frutti because it is the thing that ignited my personal passion for rock and roll, pop music, whatever you want to call it. Um, moving forward, my dad was a teenager in the, the mid-50s. So this was his pop music. Ah, to the 
likes classical music by and large and he's a classical musician as well um but you know when you're growing up your dad plays you his his favorite records here and there and i remember him talking about the 50s and about little richard connie francis eddie cochran you know whoever elvis etc etc and i had a compilation tape which i think dad gave me which had all the you know the 50s rock and roll hits and greats on there and i just think little richard is the architect of rock and roll that untamed scream that he has i still think tutti frutti good golly miss molly girl can't help it um all of those are lucille all of those early singles that he had they still sound as exciting now as they were can you imagine what they sounded like in 1955 tutti frutti was a single in 1955 it invented a new language. Teenagers across the world heard a what bop, a loo bop, a lot bam boom, and went, what on earth is that? <laughs> and it, it, it changed people. It, you talk about a seismic change in culture. It completely revolutionized the world. And when I heard it, God knows how old I was, you know, five, six, seven years old, something like that. Um, it just completely blew my mind. And even now when I'm DJing out in clubs or student unions or festivals or anything, um, I, I pretty much always end my set with Tutti Frutti. If it's not the ender, it's maybe second last. or so. it's, it's basically in there as a climax because people still to this day react to that record. They dance, they leap, they, they completely cut loose. And to me, the energy, the soul, um, the connection to my dad as well, and just it, it, it basically set me on a path um, uh, it's, it, with a total love affair of rock and roll. Um, so, yeah, it had to be in there. And when you were at school, the um, the kind of tastes that you had and so on, did you feel that you stood out a lot more than other people or did you kind of have a group of friends that, that associated with that as well? Or? Um, well, I suppose, you know, I... I was already, as you can tell from Little Richard, I was into kind of 50s rock and roll and stuff. But I found that a lot of my friends in Fife, where I grew up, um, near St. Andrews in the East Nuke of Fife, um, my my great friend who's, who lived across the road, James, who's James Yorkston, the songwriter. And, and then people, we were friends with him and we we're all our associates in St. Andrews, Steve Mason of the Beta Band and... Um, John McLean, also of the Beta Band, and all these people, I realized, funnily enough, later in life, that everyone liked 50s rock and roll. It was a thing. <laughs> I think it was because it was easy to play. Uh, yeah. So when you were picking up a guitar for the first time, you could, if you could do basically three chords, once you'd got G, C, and D, or whatever it was, you, you could play the, the, all the rock and roll hits. So it was, it was an important kind of door opening for us. But I got into what would be known as alternative music, if you like, punk, indie, goth, um, hip-hop, reggae, whatever, the stuff that was non-mainstream. And um, I did stand out, but there were a few people in Fife, in the East Nuke, who went to you know, the local schools and so on, that kind of became what would be known as alternative as well. Um, and, and a lot of those people then went on to have careers in music or the creative industries so um i suppose i've always been the school punk or whatever the school rebel the the oddball the alternative guy the guy that wrote all the band names down on his pencil case or on his backpack or whatever that always had strange shoes and wore eyeliner and backcombed his hair and <laughs> you know you know i was i was that guy at school and there weren't that many of us but there were a few um, I want to move on to your next pick, which is Adam and the Ants. And um, I suppose the he was, well, he, it sounds like you've basically just described him. <laughs> but um, why this song in particular? Well, I mean, if, if I heard Little Richard and all that rock and roll stuff and enjoyed it, um, but I, I kind of knew it was my dad's music or it, it was old music, discovering Adam Ant and Adam and the Ants uh, specifically was a complete epiphany for me as well, because, I mean, there were certain things that my friend James and I, we sort of got into music together, I suppose, or found this 
music together. We go into madness and, and eventually, you know, the specials and punk and so on. But the catalyst for all of that was Adam Ant. Now, if you hear Ant music from 1980, um, it's like a, a sort of manifesto in, in the lyrics, you know, unplug the jukebox and do us all a, fla- a favor. That music's lost its taste, so try another flavor. You know, it's it sounds cheesy when you read it out like that, but set to these Burundi drums, noisy guitars, the guy's in leather trousers with a, with a kind of gold braid jacket, he's got makeup on. A lot of the Adam and the Ant songs are all about bondage and sex and subversion and you know really odd kind of transgressive subjects you know one minute he's a native american indian the next minute he's a pirate next minute he's a cowboy the next minute he's and he came out of the whole punk thing and uh vivian westwood and malcolm mclaren malcolm mclaren was his manager for a while and you know it, it it was just so exciting and we were little kids out in the middle of nowhere in rural fife if we'd had the internet, Helena, let me tell you, we would have known every single thing there is to know about music. But um, we had magazines and books and obviously John Peel and uh, and so on on the radio. Uh, and we just dug in. We just completely immersed ourselves in, in pop music and pop culture, but specifically this kind of slightly subversive, alternative punk rock you know, it was theatrical as well. I mean, um, so Adamant was everything you wanted. Noisy guitars, two drummers, kind of sexually deviant and transgressive. And it was it was just, it blew, blew my mind. And it still does. Again, much like Little Richard, I listened to Dirk Wears White Socks, the first Adam and Yance album, uh, Kings of the Wild Frontier, the second one, and uh, Prince Charming, the third. And I would even go as far as the first solo Adam Ant album, Friend or Foe. And I hear really exciting pop music made by a man who had almost a sort of limitless imagination. Um, I'm not going to, I don't feel like an old fart going on about the good old days or anything but you've got to remember that those adam and the ants records they sound weird today they went to number one they were hugely successful yeah um and i think it it just set our imaginations wild and and it was there was a kind of feeling of anything is possible and uh, if that guy can do that then we can do anything so it was it was just so exciting and i um I look at some bland pop music being made today i'm not going to name and shame but you know there's there's some pretty bland pop artists out there who are selling millions of records or you know getting downloaded or streamed millions of times and i i just sort of feel sorry for kids in a way because i'm thinking you you want a wild man or woman like adam ant you know you want someone like that who's going to blow your mind artistically and musically and sexually and in every other way aesthetically and so it was super exciting how was life as a a teen in Fife and also I want to ask when did you first pick up your uh, your first musical instrument well um like firstly you you were asking about life in rural rural Fife it was it was idyllic in some ways as a kid um you know we had beaches and forests and fields near us um, just on our doorstep, basically. So again, a lot of people sort of think, oh, you know, growing up in the country is boring. In some ways, I, I, it lets your imagination just relax. I can just, I can remember just lying on like the lawn in our garden, just kind of staring up at the clouds or looking into the trees and thinking about stuff. And I, I think if you've got a childhood where you're allowed to just lay back and relax and imagine stuff, um, 
it's really helpful for your development as a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there weren't the distractions of a city or even a town. So you kind of make your own fun. Um, so to answer the second part of your question, my friend James and I, we started playing, you know, guitar, if you like, one-fingered guitar um, really early, probably sort of nine, ten years old, that kind of thing. Because we got into, if you think, Adamant and Ant Music was 1980. I was born in 1972. So I was kind of eight, nine years old when I was experiencing that stuff for the first time. Um, And then... Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe say a, a 10, 11 years old, we started experimenting with trying to make our own music. We had a crap tape recorder um, and some crap guitars. I think, you know, we'd get like, one of us would get a distortion pedal for Christmas and one of us would get a practice amp and one of us would get a, a crap Casio keyboard and whatever we could sort of cobble together. But we were really young. We, you know, once we started like recording ourselves, we were probably, yeah, 11, 12 years old and... My dad, I remember, my first instrument he bought me was a banjo. I have no idea why. And we didn't particularly listen to country music or bluegrass or anything like that. But he obviously thought I might like it. And I learned how to play She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain or whatever it would be. But I wasn't interested in it. So we took it to a music musical instrument shop and I swapped it for cheap, crappy electric guitar and a little practice amp so once James had a few bits and bobs and I had a few bits and bobs we just started mucking around and I I remember like working out easy things to play on the guitar copying records and one of our first was boredom by the buzzcocks and when I learned how to go down with one finger on the guitar it was like oh i am a golden god um it was just it was amazing and another one we learned to play was uh, chinese rocks by johnny thunders and the heartbreakers because again it was just such an easy riff to play on one finger and then eventually you move up to two fingers to make a sort of power chord now these songs are pretty radical you know i mean the fact that 11 12 year olds were listening to Boredom by the Buzzcocks and Chinese Rocks by Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. Chinese Rocks is about scoring heroin and, and, and not having enough money to score heroin. I mean, it's like, I don't think we really grasped that at the time, Helena. Um, but we, we, we were in love with the music. And so we just started, I've still got cassettes, which will never, ever see the light of day because it's literally before my voice broke. So you got these wee, 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 kind of um, guys recording with one finger guitars. I mean, it's just, it's absurd in some way, but that's how we made our own fun in rural Fife. <laughs> yeah. And and speaking about awakenings, um, the, the damned new rose. I, I feel this song is, is still as relevant today as when it kind of came out, and it certainly reminds me of of my other half and his musical taste as well. So, why why this song? Well, talking about your other half, Stu, uh, who was in a fantastic band, United Fruit, they came and covered this live on my show. They did, uh, <laughs> and and. and you know not only did they love it but i think it was it was a kind of like we know vic loves this so we're gonna (laughs) smash it and uh, and i feel really i felt really touched by that i mean not only did they do a great version of it but um it was just it was just a really touching thing to, to for them to have done so i'll always thank them for that um the damned okay i've chosen this anyone that knows me would know that i would choose little richard adam and the ants and the damned because they were the first band I ever saw live. I mean, technically, it was the support band, the Fuzz Tones, but it was the 1st of June, 1985, Edinburgh Playhouse. I was I hadn't quite turned 13 yet. I was still 12 years old. James is a bit older. He was 13. And we had two friends from school as well that came with us that I've sadly lost touch with. Uh, Dick Petrie and John Cummins, um, for, for, for those uh, who want to know. Uh, but my mum drove us through from Fife to Edinburgh, dropped us off round the corner from the Edinburgh Playhouse. We walked round with our DMs on trying to look tough and suddenly we were faced with thousands of real punks. And um, yeah, um, it was it was kind of, again, just a, a huge, huge life-changing moment. It's kind of strange, like a story scene 
Going to a gig and seeing this, the Fuzz Tones are like a sort of sixties garage um, revival band with Vox teardrop guitars and bone necklaces and stripy t-shirts, and they were great, great opening act. But the punks in Edinburgh threw um, pint glasses at them, and you know they threw stuff at them and spat at them, and we were like, "What? <laughs> this is you know imagine the first gig you've ever been to, and, and in my case, I was twelve years old, and there was there was us thinking we were punks, you know, with like sort of boots hair gel in our hair like spiked up and um doc martens on and then there were guys with tartan bondage trousers and pink mohicans spitting at the at the band you know it was it was wild and then the damned came on the stage was done up like a graveyard dave vaney and i can remember sort of leapt in the air almost did the splits rat scabies the drummer set fire to his drum kit you know he set fire to the cymbals of lighter fluid i mean (laughs) it was just it, again, I mean, how can you top that? I mean, I've, I always, I've, I've, I fell in love with rock and roll. And then if your first gig, it, you see the drummer set fire to the drum kit and people, you know, spitting at the support band. It was, it was just incredible. Um, and I, I was during the clear up of my flat during lockdown, I've been going through old clothes and chucking stuff out. And, and I found a T-shirt from that that gig. I didn't chuck it out, obviously, but my very first gig, I've got a, a, a extra large. I don't know why I got an extra large T-shirt. So it's actually too big for me even now. But um, yeah, it was it, it was incredible. Now I could have chosen any um, song by the Damned, and to be honest, that tour, Captain Sensible, had sort of been kicked out of the band at that point, and they were going into their gothy phase, and they were promoting this new single called Grimly Fiendish. So I nearly chose that one. But New Rose is the first UK punk single. It's still as exciting and dynamic now as the day it was recorded and released in 1976. Um, I was lucky enough to make uh, a documentary on New Rose and 40 Years of the Damned in 2016 for six music. Can you imagine, Helena? Can you imagine? It's just it's almost too much, you know, and I, and I've got to know the damned captain sensible emails me or texts me sometimes, you know, Dave Vaney and also hello, sir. And you know, whenever I see him at a festival, it's, it's, it's my teenage heart, my pre teenage heart explodes with a joy and they, they had to be in this box of records and I've gone for the archetypal, you know, incredible punk rock number new rose. It's got to be done. Your passion for them is is unbelievable, as with the other records. Um, and you commented earlier about pop music potentially being a bit bland now, and you feel sorry for for uh, younger people in certain respects. Have has there been anything within the last five to ten years from any artist that has kind of almost neared what you felt when you saw these or heard these artists for the first time? Yeah, I want to clear that up as well. I mean, as much as I I don't want to sound like an old fart saying, oh, music was better in my day, I think music is better today than it's ever been before. I just think that the stuff that makes it into mainstream um, kind of pop culture and tops the charts, if that's important anymore, um, is, is just very bland and very sort of lacking in that kind of subversive character, which I think was there in the in the 50s if you look little richard was a bisexual black man with uh, makeup and lacquered pompadour hair i mean the mm-hmm. guy was unbelievably subversive um you've got to remember that this is pre civil rights movement in america as well so for little richard to be on tv and in the charts going wow with makeup on sing, being sexually sort of ambiguous and so on it was it was huge adamant I've, I've i've said i mean what what a wild character to top the charts and be on the bedroom walls of kids the length and breadth of the country the damned you know again a totally wild band and the first uk punk band to 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 really connect with an audience and to tour america and to release an album just so exciting um i I think there's just as exciting music being made now, but um, I just don't think it breaks through into the public consciousness in the same way that it perhaps did in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s. Um, But in terms of something that's made me feel that excitement, you know I do my radio programs, you know I'm a music nerd, and I'm constantly looking for exciting stuff. I would say 
Young Fathers are as exciting a band as any that I've heard in my 40 odd years of living you know um if you see that band live they're just as exciting i would imagine as seeing adam and the ants live or little richard live or you know the damned in their heyday or whatever you know it's it's visceral it's it's subversive it's exciting it's melodic it's it's hugely um you know impressive in terms of the rhythms and polyrhythms that go on so from a musical side it's really interesting from a sort of theatrical showmanship side it's it's really explosive as well so there's there's one example of of a band that I think a current band um, or a current set of artists that I think are just as good. Uh, so your next pick is one of my favourite bands of all time, and I guess that um, you making that damned doc- documentary would be the equivalent for me with Nirvana. Um, Sliver is probably one of the more popular aspects of Nirvana, so it's interesting that you've picked this. So why this song in particular? Okay, I'll make you sick here, Helena. Oh, I God, saw Nirvana. Don't. I saw Nirvana four times live. Um, I, I saw them. I saw them twice at Reading Festival. First time when they were kind of halfway up the bill, and then the second time when they headlined. But I also saw them twice in Edinburgh at what was what became Studio Twenty Four. It was called Carlton Studios on Carlton Road, just down from the venue. And uh, it's no longer a venue anymore, sadly. I saw loads of great bands in that venue around that time. So I left school in 1990 and I saw Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Ride, um, The Soup Dragons, Fugazi, The Shaman, all sorts of like a complete mixture of different bands that would, you know, that were kind of alternative at the time. Um, the Cataran, Mega City 4, all of these bands that I thought were really exciting in my like adopted hometown of Edinburgh. So, um, but yeah, I saw Nirvana four times. And the reason I've chosen this is because um, I never consciously like join a gang or join a movement or, or feel like I'm part of the zeitgeist or part of an era of music, but with Nirvana and grunge and that kind of U S alternative rock, I was, I was part of it. It was no doubt. first time I saw Nirvana, it wasn't their first UK tour, it was their second, I think. L7 were the support band. How good is that? And they covered um, uh, the Dead Kennedys, Lynch the Landlord in their set as well, which was just fantastic. Um, Nirvana, it was the first UK tour they'd done with Dave Grohl on drums, and they were promoting Sliver and Dive, the split single. So we we already had Bleach. And loved that. And I could have easily chosen a track from Bleach. I absolutely love Bleach. I still play it to this day. It's so visceral as well. My girlfriend loves it as well. So if we've had a couple of shandies, we might stick on Bleach and, um, <laughs> you know, and scream the lyrics at each other across the room. But I went for Sliver because it was the first song, apart from maybe About a Girl on Bleach, it was the first um, song that really showed Kurt Cobain's pop prowess, if you like, and his... His, it's just knack of writing a perfect pop song, but also it was the it was the the tour that I first saw them on. So I was thinking, oh, I could have gone for something from Nevermind or In Utero or whatever. But no, go for this one. It still sounds great. It's an amazing piece of music, and and as I say, it was it was kind of hey, we're going to play our new single now, and they would go into Sliver, you know, and dive. Um, so yeah, I was part of that movement. Uh, you know, I, I had the the ripped grungy clothes the, the the sort of central parted mop top hair the the crappy secondhand leather jacket you know i had the gear on i was into hardcore punk and you know black sabbath and all of the stuff that was it there was an influence on grunge and here was this movement of bands i loved mud honey tad you know screaming trees all of the bands that were around at that point but there was obviously something special um about kurt cobain and nirvana and and i think this song is just beautiful i want to talk a bit about your your mammoth media career which is um it's kind of 
it still amazes me how much you have done, but what you're still doing. Um, but we'll, it might have changed, obviously, given the circumstances. How did you get your, your first kind of break? And um, was it difficult or did you really kind of have to push hard for it? Um, again, I'll make you slightly sick here, Helena, by saying I didn't ever plan to to have a career in the media and it was not on my radar at all. And I didn't try to get the job or anything. Uh, a friend of mine worked at the BBC and she was girlfriend of a friend of mine, a good friend of mine from school. And then, and eventually they got married and now they um, have four kids and, uh, you know, it's, it's a lovely, happy story there. But um, I would go to gigs and festivals with them and I'd always be the guy going, let's go and see that band. And they'd be like, who? And then I'd drag them to see some new band. And then that new band six months later would be a headliner or whatever. I, I, I had a sort of, you know, I, I was a nerd uh, you know, in terms of music and what I liked. And I was always looking for the next up and coming thing and the next thing that pushed the boundaries a little bit. And, um, and like, yeah, so Claire sort of said to me one day, there's this opening at, uh, there's this new show going to be starting in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. So you had the evening session on Radio 1 with, with Steve Lamack and they were going to do the session in Scotland, the session in Northern Ireland, session in Wales. And she said, they've been looking for presenters and they haven't found anyone that they really like. I think you should go for it. Um, you know, what have you got to lose? And initially I was like, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an artist. I'm a punk rocker. I'm a, I'm a you know, I'm a songwriter. I'm a, I'm a musician. I'm not a media person. And so I initially, and then she, she actually carried on with me. She went, go on, like, give it a shot. And then I thought about it and I, I was like, I couldn't, my bands couldn't get arrested, basically. We weren't really successful in any way. We played Reading Festival, Tea in the Park, toured a bit in Europe, put out some DIY releases, got a bit of play from John Peel and Steve Lamack and stuff, but we weren't real. it wasn't connecting with people. Um, so I just thought, well, what the hell, go for it. And, um, I made a tape of me sort of basically introducing the records, saying some knowledgeable things about them, maybe being a little bit cheeky about a few things, but not just trying not to sound like a dick, trying not to sound like an arsehole. Um, the, the radio DJs that I liked were John Peel, Andy Kershaw and Mark Radcliffe and, and, you know, and, and Lamac a bit, you know, of course as well. And, um, and I just, I suppose I didn't do my impersonation of them, but I just sort of thought, I don't want to be one of those, hey, hey, hey radio guys. <laughs> um, I just, you know, I just didn't want to be that, that sort of, you know, cheese ball. So um, I, I just sort of did it in my own way. And lo and behold, I, I sort of forgot about it. Um, a few weeks later, someone from Radio One phoned me up and went, um, uh, hi Vic, uh, you're down to the last ten uh, in our selection process, or whatever. And then eventually it was down to the last five, and and then eventually it was kind of like we can't decide between you and this um, girl Jill Mills. So we're thinking, would you like to do a pilot with both of you? And we're going to do something similar in Northern Ireland and Wales. So it was Hugh Stevens and Bethan Elfin in Wales. It was um, Colin Murray and Donna Legg in Northern Ireland. And it was Jill Mills and I in Scotland. And we got the gig. We did, made a couple of pilots. We got the gig and it was a very steep learning curve. Um, I'd never been on the radio ever before. Like I'd never done student radio or hospital radio or anything like that. And so I just had to like learn everything as I went along. And I, I was probably initially I was bit more reserved and withdrawn a little bit and I was the music nerd and Jill was perhaps a bit more showbiz and a bit more like mouthy gobby and um but then we sort of equaled out you know she is a music fan and and you know her music tastes came out and my kind of ability to talk bollocks <laughs> came to the forefront as well and then we did that program for five years um it was initially the session in scotland then it was uh vic and jill on radio one and then jill went down to london and and left the bbc and so on and i and it was just vic galloway and then it became bbc introducing in scotland with vic galloway on radio one and the show moved from that lovely evening session slot from the seven till nine and eight till 10 slot to midnight till 2am. And I kind of knew that the writing was on the wall then, not just for me, but the kind of nation's opt-outs. Um, um, Ali McRae took over and did the show for a 
two yeah. or three years afterwards. But um, it's a it's a real shame. I think Radio One are missing a real trick. I think they should be doing a show like that in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland to this day. You know, f- helping to find new acts, local acts. I think it's a it's a really great gateway for artists to get national exposure because we were on seven till nine on Radio One, so you'd be playing new Scottish artists at that perfect time in the evening when people are going to the gym or coming back from work or cooking their dinner or maybe they've just had their dinner and they're sitting down to relax. And we had a really great captive audience, a lot of people listening. You know, when we asked for texts or, um, you know, anything like that, we would be absolutely bombarded. You know, if we were running a competition, we got tickets to tea in the park, Who, you know, we get like, hundreds uh you know of of texts immediately and it was it was just great we were playing brand new scottish artists astrid or at the time you know snow patrol and bands like that right next to you know established um alternative evening session type bands from um across the uk and the world and you know it it was i just think it was a really good time it was it was a great time so i did in the end i did 11 and a bit years on Radio 1, 11 and a half years uh, of weekly shows. And at the same time, that allowed me to, I got a show on Radio Scotland, which can, continues to this day. That was about two years into Radio 1. I started doing the two shows every week. And then that led to, you know, doing stuff for TV. And uh, I did lots of the Tea in the Park presenting and various different music TV shows. Um, it also led on to Six Music and Bits for the World Service. And I've been very lucky. Uh, to be honest, when my friend Claire was egging me on and pushing me into doing it, she was like, you've got that nerdy music knowledge. You've got that passion for new music and you can talk. And Helena, <laughs> you can tell I can talk. So it's like, um, I, you know, I can string two words together and I can talk off the top of my head. And I suppose those are the things that are requisite for a, a radio presenter. And then if, you, if you're if you into music and you're doing music radio, I, I don't know why I'd never thought of it before, but it seems like the perfect job for me in some ways. Um, you are, I mean, Franz Ferdinand are obviously part of that journey within uh, radio and so on. I mean, you've, you mentioned Snow Patrol and, and various bands around that time. And Franz Ferdinand, I guess I became aware of them um, around 2004, perhaps. Um, what was it that, um, that, I mean, obviously they're from Scotland, but what was it that stood out about them? How was your relationship with them? And how is that kind of extended to this day? Because I know that you're, you're fiercely um, positive about them as, a, as an export. Yeah, um- I, I just thought I wanted to choose a, a record here for this feature that sort of uh, encapsulated or somehow, you know, uh, put a, a rubber stamp on some of the stuff that I've done on the radio over the years. And I went for Franz Ferdinand. I could have gone for, well, I was lucky enough to have, to play Biffy Clyro for the first time on BBC, you know, Calvin Harris, um, God knows, you know, you go through the the last 20 years of Sort of alternative and and sort of crossover artists. I've been lucky enough to um, either play for the first time or or give them the first BBC play um, of, of loads of different artists. And I just thought I'd choose Franz Ferdinand because, well, for a start, Alex Capranos, who I first knew as Alex Huntley, had been a total campaigner. He'd been in loads of different bands. I'd played on three band bills with him in the Kaz Rock Cafe in Edinburgh and so on. We always used to admire each other's pointy shoes or like cheap secondhand suits or whatever we were wearing on stage that night. And I always liked his bands. He he comes from a similar place to me in that I think he loves Adam and the Ants and, and kind of punk and um, new wave and so on. And uh, we always used to talk about the monochrome set and the fall and bands like that. And, and so he got in touch and, and sort of said, here's my new band, you know, sent me a, like a CDR or maybe it was even a mini disc. I can't remember. I've got all, all this sort of stuff in my music room in my house, by the way, I've kept as much stuff as possible. Uh, occasionally you have to throw things out, but anyway, we played them in demo form um, as this new band from Glasgow featuring Alex, who'd been in the Karelia and the, um, the blisters and all these different bands. And um, it was just, it was at that point when, 
the strokes, the hives, the yeah, yeah, yeahs, the white stripes yeah. were breaking through and having major global success. And the UK needed a sort of a counterpoint to it. You know, it needed it needed its bands to go, hey, we're we're just as good as you lot. And I think Franz Ferdinand were the spearhead of that. Party with Goods and uh, Future Heads and all sorts of different bands came out around that time, Kaiser Chiefs and so on. But Franz Ferdinand were great then, and I still think they, they their quality control is is kept to the absolute tops, uh, even to this day. Their last album, Always Ascending, is brilliant as well. Um, so I wanted to choose a record that, that outlined that sort of, maybe some of the artists that I've been lucky enough to help along their career and, and sort of break in a way, or at least play for the first time. I'm not by any means trying to say that I, (laughs) I made Franz Ferdinand big and popular. I was able to help them along. And we did their very first radio session was actually on my radio Scotland show. And they played Optimo on the, the the Sunday night before. So they were kind of stinking of booze and fags (laughs) and the night before, and they came in and they did a live session on the show. Um, to show you how early it was, they played a song which is now called Jacqueline. They didn't even have a, a title for it. They called it Better on Holiday. Um, I've still got that session on a CDR in my, in my sort of music library. And um, they did a Radio 1 session for us. And the B-side of the seven-inch vinyl of Take Me Out. Take Me Out was their big, um, it still is their biggest tune. But it was yeah. it was the, the point that connected. It went to number four in the charts or something like that. It was It was released in January 2004. And it was such a good move. You know, it was just after Christmas and the new year. New band, new sound, new single, bang. And it went into the top 10. The seven-inch. The B-side is a session track of ours, so a Vic and Jill uh, session track uh, called Truck Stop. So not only was this a band that we'd sort of helped along the way, but we actually, I have a little bit of pop history, you know, in terms of, you know, the B-side. If you buy that, if you see that seven inch in a shop somewhere, if you get it, um, you'll see the Vic and Jill session track on the B-side. So that's why I went for this. I also think they're an amazing band. He's a brilliant songwriter. They're, they're you know, ecstatic live even to this day. Alex doesn't age either, the bastard. I mean, he doesn't look a day over. <laughs> Neither whatever. to you, Jesus. <laughs> well, I, like I, I, I'm, I'm old and grey and fat, um, and <laughs> and he, he's, he somehow isn't any of those, um, and he's, he's about the same age as me, if not a year older. I'm not sure, but I mean, um, so yeah, I, I think they're a great band, and this kind of, as I say, encapsulates. I think I'd like to think, um, you know, a lot of the bands that I've helped you know, break over the years or at least play for the first time. Has there ever been a moment uh, within your radio career or even just being at a show or something that you've become quite like notice, noticeably uh, emotional watching a band that you just think, my goodness, I'm I'm so proud to see or so happy to, to see them get the break that they deserve? Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, I'm, it's, it's weird to say this was emotional, but I remember the first time Franz Ferdinand played the main stage at Tea in the Park. So they'd played the year before in the tea break tent or um, the PRS tent, whatever it was at that point, as a as a completely new band. But between that year and the following festival, they'd released Take Me Out and the debut album and so on. So they were pretty much one of the hottest bands in the UK and they were certainly the hottest band in Scotland. And they had a slot on the main stage. And my producer on Radio 1 at the time... um. Muslim Alim and I, we stood, or, or uh, he was a friend. I'm not sure. I think he started producing me a, a year or two later. Anyway, he and I watched them from the side of the main stage on stage, you know, it, just in the wings. Mm-hmm. And we watched them walk on stage, pick up their instruments, plug in, and then play to God knows how many. There must have been 40,000 people watching them or something like that. And you've never seen a band look so determined they, they they were going to nail this. They were going to smash it no matter what. But they also had that you kind of look of fear as well yeah. and that kind of... And 
the it was almost I always say this it was almost as if they personally plugged into the mainframe so the electricity was going through them Paul Thompson <laughs> who's an amazing drummer was whacking that drum kit I mean it was it was rocking on on the sort of drum riser it was I thought at one point he was going to the the drums were going to come off the riser he was and they just smashed it and they they all looked great they performed brilliantly the crowd as you know at tea in the park everyone just jumped up and down in unison and everyone sang the riff (laughs) i mean only in scotland will the the audience (laughs) sing the riff back at you um so that that was kind of strangely emotional but i could i could say that on so many different occasions i remember introducing frightened rabbit on stage at a student union uh, in dundee i think it was dundee university student union or perhaps uh, like and it was that point when they weren't like a household name or a massive band, but they were just, they were getting to that, to, to being that crossover act mm-hmm. when the audience go right down the front, they lean on the crash barrier and they sing the words of your songs back to you. And I can remember Scott Hutchison looking around at the, at the rest of the band, just going like, as if to say, what the fuck? These guys <laughs> know the, the words of my tunes. And, <laughs> and that was kind of emotional watching King Creaso, um, like connect with audiences after years of going absolutely nowhere with his bands and building up little pockets of followings here and there, but really not, you know, not having any proper success and actually having mental health problems as a result of all of that to finally see that coming to fruition and like actually people falling in love with his music and his songwriting, you know, on mass that was emotional. I mean, I could Biffy Clyro for God's sake. I mean, that band I played since they were unsigned, and I've watched them become the UK's pretty much the UK's biggest rock band, or certainly up yeah. there. Maybe Muse are bigger than them, but you know, they're 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 headliner rock band material now. They'll they'll do a headline set, download or Sonosphere or Reading and Leeds, um, and they're not far off the headline slot at Glastonbury nowadays. And just to remember that band, we had them in session year after year after year. No one was interested. You know, um, and I remember, I'm not going to name and shame, but I remember some other radio DJs got, saying to me, that band are going nowhere. <laughs> and, I, and, me, and me going, mm, I don't think so. And I would never rub their faces in it, but yeah. I could. Yeah. Um, and so to, to see those guys, I interviewed them again recently and they were really ambitious still. They're really friendly, really focused. And, you know, it's it's just a joy to see them become such a huge band and you know young fathers who i've mentioned already uh watching them they had years of frustration i mean i had them in session 2007 yeah um and and to you know they were a bit more jovial then it was a bit more kind of outcast um you know beastie boys-esque you know they dropped my name into the rhymes and it was more kind of party hip-hop at that point uh but the essence of what they do now was there and they struggled and no one, you know, they almost got a break and then didn't. And to see them win the Mercury and the say award twice, I mean, stuff like that, you know, brings a tear to a glass eye. Yeah. It has been incredible, uh, you know, where you've been positioned when these things have happened. And obviously the, the clear help that you have contributed to careers. Um, the, the beta band who are, I mean, this song, Dry the Rain, is stunning. Um, and they are, for me, one of uh, the most underrated bands um, in, in kind of my lifetime, I would say. Um, you mentioned that you've been, you were childhood friends uh, with a couple of them. So did that contribute as to why you picked them or was it for another reason? Well, I picked them for uh, the main reason being uh, these are sort of dotted sort of memories and occasions throughout my life. So once I'd been on radio for, you know, 11 years or so, 11 and a half years, um, eventually I got the boot from Radio 1, end of 2010. I was still doing my Radio Scotland stuff. I was doing bits of six music and telly and all sorts of stuff. So it wasn't the end of the world. But no one likes being told, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And I remember feeling a little bit dejected and feeling a little bit kind of like, uh, what, what am I going to do? You know, what am I going to do with my life? And instead of drowning my sorrows and just sitting in the pub and getting all maudlin about things, um, 
without sounding too much like a hippie and a motivational speaker here, I wanted to turn the negative into positive, Helena. So um, <laughs> I, I kind of um, I decided I wanted to use whatever kind of slight frustrations I had in a positive way. And I'd enjoyed doing a lot of journalism. I'd done a lot of stuff for the Herald and the List, and I'd written a piece for the Sunday Times and all sorts of stuff. And I realized, although I enjoyed doing 100-word little snippets and 400-word articles, I enjoyed doing, if I was given the opportunity, 1,000, 1,500 words, like doing a real kind of decent, chunky piece. So I thought, you know, I would like to try and write a book if I can. I, I mean, why not? Let's Let's see if I can write a book. So I put the word out to a few friends and like literary department in creative Scotland and sort of said, how do you get a book deal? How do you get published? How do you go around it? And in some ways it's similar to a record deal. You kind of need to have a, a good product, a good idea, um, a good, some good music or a good sort of idea for a book. And then you have to kind of get an agent and yada, yada, yada. So I, I was introduced to an agent who's still my literary agent to this day. Um, he and I hit it off. We started talking about psychedelia punk folk music reggae whatever and you know we were kind of obviously going to be friends anyway and I, I hit him with all these different ideas for books and he just said songs in the key of fife <laughs> your, your 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 sort of tale about the beta band uh, james yorkson king creaso katie tunstall and the fence collective that is your first book them all you have a connection to them um your story is kind of interwoven a little bit with theirs why don't you see if you can do that so he asked me to write the back of the book i wrote the back of the book like the blurb that you see on the back of a book if you pick it up in a bookshop yeah. and the, the 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 blurb that you see on the back of songs in the key of fife is pretty much what i wrote maybe tweaked a little bit and he then took it around a few um publishers two of them said yes and we went with one of them and uh, well they basically said would you do a chapter breakdown so i did a chapter breakdown and i named all the chapters after songs or albums pertaining to the the artists that i was writing about and they said yes and off we went now i didn't know john mclean growing up and i knew steve mason only a little bit i'd only met him two or three times but i was i was aware of them i was very good friends with um james yorkston i'd been in two bands with him and, and and obviously we learned to play those one-fingered guitars back in you know when we were 10 years old or whatever and I'd also been in a band with Ken Creosote, Kenny Anderson and his brother Ian Anderson and I knew his brother Gordon who was an original member of the Beta Band so you know and I'd grown up a little bit with um, Katie Tunstall I knew her because she used to sing and play with the uh, Scooby-Doo Orchestra which was Kenny and Ian's band, um, sort of late 80s, early 90s. And then my band with James had broken up Miracle Head and Scooby-Doo Orchestra had broken up. And we came together and formed a band between us, Cartoon Heroes. And so anyway, I had I had connections, really close connections to James and Kenny and Ian. And I had slightly more distant connections to the Beta Band, but I knew them from Fife and and Tayside, Tayport, and so on. Uh, and so, you know. They all said yes. They all agreed to being interviewed and they all agreed to contributing to, to the book. So I, I went and did, you know, 10, 12, 20 hour interviews with all of the main protagonists. Um, you know, Steve Mason, John McLean, uh, Johnny Lynch picked his trail, Kenny Anderson, obviously, Ian Anderson, Gordon Anderson, Katie Tunstall, James Yorkston, all of the people that I wanted to be the main players and a couple of, um, you know, perhaps less well-known artists as part of the Fence Collective. And I sent out questionnaires. And then I, I put my back into it and I wrote a fucking book, Helena. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was it was a mammoth task. I'd never written a book before. Um, and it was published in 2013. And I just thought I wanted 
you know, being a published author is, it's, it's maybe not quite as good as being a rock star, but, uh, it, you know, my mum was certainly happier when she saw that book. Not that she's ever read it or cares about any of the music in it, but my son's an author and he works for the BBC. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it made my mum very happy and it opened lots of doors for me. Um, you know, when you're a published author, suddenly people take you seriously. Um, ha ha ha. Uh, but they don't kind of take you seriously if you play pop records on the radio for some reason, but they do once you're published. So, you know, suddenly you're a broadcaster uh, and a, a published author. And it was, it was a huge seismic change in my life. And I kind of made it happen myself. Um, so I'm quite proud of that. And I could have played a track from Ken Creaso, James Yorkston, Pictures Trail, any of these um, artists. But I think this is an amazing song, Dry the Rain. I, I've got a demo version of it, which I, I didn't even know what it was called. It's on a cassette somewhere. So I just called it the rain song. And, <laughs> um, and it's, a, it's a sort of like, it's the version of Dry the Rain that you know, without the big end section with the horns and um, so on. And I saw the Beta Band's third or fourth gig. Um, they'd done a few around London and they'd done a festival. And then I think it was about the, I don't know, maybe it was the fourth or fifth gig. They played the Edinburgh venue. And I went with Kenny Anderson and Gordon Anderson and we watched them and they played all the songs from Champion Versions, the first EP, a couple from the second EP. And then they did a massive jam on the house song. Um, and, and that was all they had. They ha I think they had like five or six tunes and a jam. And, um, but it was, it was, you knew that there was something special, the songwriting, the rhythms, the, uh, the, you know, it was, it was kind of post Beck. Um, it had 60s psychedelia in there. It had hip hop in there. It had, you know, their influences from primal scream and the KLF and, um, and it just seemed quite free. Uh, so I've chosen this song to outline the book and that part of my life, but also that that part of Scottish music, which I think you're right in saying is maybe overlooked sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of what you've done, and we've probably haven't even spoken about half the stuff that you've done. Um, and we've just kind of touched the tip of the iceberg, but unfortunately <laughs> we're coming up to the last song of the podcast, which kind of moves more into film. And I think it's quite interesting asking people either a song from an official soundtrack or, you know, a score or whatever that, that kind of stands out for them um, during their life. You have picked Irma Thomas. So why does this stand out for you more than anything? Well, when you, you said, can you make one of your suggestions something connected to film? I mean, I'm a huge fan of soundtracks. I love John Barry. I love Ennio Morricone. I love, you know, John Carpenter, John Williams, all sorts of people that have made actual soundtracks. And, and you know, today I could have mentioned uh, Jeff Barrow from Portishead and yeah. um, Beak. He makes incredible soundtracks. Mogwai. There's all sorts of people out there that I could have chosen. But I love the director, Jim Jarmusch. I think he's a real rock and roll filmmaker. He made recently um, the definitive um, biography, film biopic, if you like, of the Stooges. And he's always had, you know, in his coffee and cigarettes films, he's had Iggy Pop in his films and... Um, the Rizzer from Wu-Tang and Jack White and all sorts of people. He's in, he's in love with The Clash and, you know, um, Screaming Jay Hawkins and all sorts of people. And I loved a film from the 80s called, which we probably discovered in like the early 90s, to be honest, um, called uh, Down by Law. And I actually have a full-size film poster in a frame in, in my house, actually, in my flat. Um uh, if you don't know the film, search it out. It's fantastic. It's a it's a trio buddy movie. Tom Waits acts in it. John Lurie acts in it, and Roberto Benini um, acts in it, the Italian comedian. And basically, I won't give it away, but all three of them get thrown into prison together in New Orleans. Um, it's all filmed in black and white. The cinematography is incredible, and it's basically the relationship between the three of them. Um, and the, Jim Jarmusch wrote it and directed it. Um, now, John Lurie does a soundtrack to the film, and it's really eerie and amazing. He's a kind of jazz musician. And Tom Waits provides kind of a couple of songs for the soundtrack. But there's also um, this moment. I don't want to ruin the film for people who haven't seen it, but there's this moment when Roberto Benini's character meets an Italian woman in the most absurd circumstances, and they fall in love on first sight. And there's this moment in the film when... 
Tom Waits and John Lurie are sitting having sort of brunch breakfast um, and they're wearing ill-fitting clothes and they're feeling a bit awkward and Roberto Benigni and I can't remember the actress's name it's now I think it's his wife in real life as well Um, they have this hug and this dance in front of the other two while listening to It's Raining by Irma Thomas I guess I'll have to accept the fact that you're not here I fell in love with that song and Irma Thomas's music immediately. It's 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 one of those moments in a film which is like happy sad. You're sort of crying with joy. <laughs> You're it, it's it's very melancholy, but it's also joyous. And um, Irma Thomas, the soul queen of New Orleans, she's still making music. She's still out there playing live as well. She must be, I would imagine, into her seventies, possibly even eighties now. And um, this song, I think, is one of the saddest heartbreak songs of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 about she she's looking out the window, wishing she could be with her lover, her partner, her ex, whatever, and it's raining. And if you haven't had that feeling at least once in your life, you know, I I I would say you're lying. Basically, it's <laughs> unbelievably tragic. It's so sad, and yet the moment in the film, it it's it's just so beautifully joyous um so i just went for that i saw the film poster in my house and i love that film and i I watch it at least once a year and if you don't know it search it out and fall in love with this song as well well vic uh i could listen to you talk all day but um really you're about the only one (laughs) really uh no i think it's nice having a pro on um every now and again because it saves me a lot of work i have to say i want to say thank you so much because i know how busy you are um i how have things changed for you since lockdown has there been any major uh kind of changes at all uh, since lockdown, um, I've had, uh, I would say, half of my income just immediately slashed in terms of work because I'm freelance. So, I, yes, I do my BBC shows, but I also do lots of other stuff. And a lot of it's to do with live music, events, um, festivals, gigs, et cetera, et cetera, whether it be hosting uh, events, um, you, know, you know, booking and curating events or, or like DJing at them. So all of that work has gone from the immediate and by the looks of things, quite distant future. I mean, it doesn't look like we're going to get back to live music and gatherings for a, quite a long time. So in terms of that, financially, I've been hit a bit. But in some ways, I feel like with my radio stuff, my journalism, you know, Songs in the Key of Five, Rip It Up, Story of Scottish Pop, that book, and all of the various things that I've done, uh, I feel, and also the bands that I play in and so on as well, um, uh, I, fe- I feel like I've had my foot on the accelerator for like 20, 21 years. Yeah. So in some ways, it's quite nice. I don't want to make light of this awful situation we're in with the global pandemic. But um, if there's a silver lining to it, personally, it's it's I get to organize my music room, sort out my house, sit back, relax a little bit. There's, you know, in some ways, there's not much else you can do. It's giving us all a bit of time to ponder, to take stock, to look at our lives and potentially look at what we might do next. Um, Who knows if we'll all make major changes after um, COVID-19 is controlled. But I think certainly we've all had to think about major issues in our lives and and what's important and friends family community love between humans i really hope that at the end of all of this that we come out of it as more tolerant more more open-minded and more respectful humans there's been a lot of polarization especially on the internet politically and socially and so on and i really hope that we we look back at this time and see it as a as an awful thing that happened but that we we sort of gathered together and and realized that there were certain things that were more important than arguing and slagging each other off on the internet so i've been thinking about a lot of that stuff i'm 
pretty peaceful. I do have that feeling of existential dread a little bit, uh, but I think we all have that. And I'm trying to be creative, write songs for my band, check masses and make tunes for them, um, do some podcasty type stuff. Obviously, I'm still able to do my weekly BBC show, so I've got yeah. some work and focus. So I'm just trying to stay busy and stay safe and stay positive. And we can't ask for more than that. Um, thank you so much. And I wish you all the luck and love and really appreciate you doing this podcast. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 